This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast. I'm Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement for the Howard G. Hendricks Center of Christian Leadership and Cultural Engagement. And today we have a special audio-only podcast involving Islam. The discussion is with Dr. Dudley Woodbury, who ministered for many years in an Islamic context and understands Islam and what it is to live in the midst of Muslims. So I think you'll find this podcast informative as well as interesting. My name is Mark Bailey, and I have the privilege of serving as president at Dallas Theological Seminary. And joining me uh, around the table today is Dr. J. Dudley Woodbury, who is the professor of Islamic studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. It's been our privilege to have him on our campus for a lectureship on missions and evangelism uh, this fall. And uh, we're delighted that you're here uh, you. with us. Uh, he is a noted author. He's had extensive ministry experience in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. He has served as a consultant to the, on the Muslim world to President Carter and the State Department and other U.S. government agencies. And he uh, continues to travel, speak, and write. And along with his responsibilities, uh, he is uh, a professor in the classroom with the students at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. Also sitting around the table uh, with us today, we're delighted to have uh, Dr. Mike Pocock, who is the chairman and senior professor in our World Missions and uh, Intercultural Studies Department, and Dr. Daryl Bach, who is research professor of New Testament Studies and professor of spiritual development and culture. Uh, Mike, welcome to uh, our table today to interact with us. We're delighted that you have taken the time to be with us. Well, thanks very much. It's great to be here. And Daryl, thank you again for uh, being a part of another one of these discussions, and uh, we look forward to your questions and your comments as well. That's my pleasure. Dr. Woodbury, let me just start very basic. Uh, a number of people within our churches and probably within our own culture hear the words, Islam, Muslim, uh, how are those terms appropriately used? What's their appropriate connotation? The root meaning of both of them is to submit, uh, with the idea of submitting to God. And so Islam refers to the religion, although it is a submitting to God in the way that uh, is explained in the Quran and by uh, their prophet Muhammad. And a Muslim is a follower of that religion. So Islam would be the religion, a Muslim is one who would follow the religion. That's right. Great. That, that's helpful. Uh, you've been lecturing this week uh, on some of the cultural changes, the social, political, environmental uh, factors that uh, abound around our world and how God may be using that to uh, 
have this as a prime time with uh, with which to share Christ in Muslim lands. Uh, could you comment on that? Let me ask it more specifically. What are some of the social and political factors God seems to be providentially using to allow the message of Christ to be communicated in lands known for their Islamic orientation? Well, uh, we might talk about the hand of God in the glove of current events. Uh, The first are political events, and uh, the political events are causing turmoil when people are looking for God. They are creating disillusionment with the type of Islam that is frequently evident in our day, and so uh, some of them with that disillusionment are turning to Christ. Uh, Then there are issues of uh, natural disasters like the tsunami and also the earthquake that has just gone on. And as Christians have been ministering with acts of mercy in these areas, uh, there has also been a responsiveness uh, to the gospel. Dr. Woodbury, um, when people hear the word Islam, I I think many of them just think that there's one thing out there. Um, uh, Help us to understand uh, the nature of Islam today and the complexity of what what, uh, the Muslim faith is. Uh, Well, you have a whole spectrum uh, of Muslims. You have uh, peaceful ones, you have militant uh, ones. And uh, you have these really in the various branches in Sunni Islam, which represents the majority of Muslims and in Shiite uh, Islam. And uh, so we can't really designate a people as particularly militant or peaceful just by the Uh, type of Islam they follow because you are finding peacefulness and militancy uh, in people representing quite a spectrum of different groups. We were used to the idea and begin to hear in the newspaper uh, phrases like uh, Shiite Muslims and Mm -hmm. Sunni Muslims, and it seems that even in countries where the United States is currently engaged, there's more than one brand of Muslim, you might say, and this actually is posing quite a difficulty in terms of uniting the country. Can you explain just a bit of of the differences between the the major sects of Islam? Right. Uh, Sunnis are the majority group outside of countries like uh, Iran and Iraq and uh, Yemen. And those have uh, various kinds of Shiites. But the Sunnis uh, chose their leader after the death of Muhammad uh, in the traditional way that Arabs chose a sheikh. That is, uh, the leaders of the community got together and chose whoever was most competent or most powerful. The Shia, who had their historic roots in the area of the Achaemenian Empire, where Iraq and Iran are today, they had a history of divine leadership. That is where the king had a divine element there. And so they wanted a leader who was the nearest male relative of Muhammad Uh, who would carry on the divine light as they understood it from Muhammad so that a Shiite leader speaks with far more authority than a Sunni leader because a Sunni leader, uh, it has to be his power or um, influence uh, that is what 
provides leadership for him. While for the Shia, there's a sense that uh, they have a, a divine element, the light of Muhammad in themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, beyond uh, you know, those major divisions of uh, Sunni and Shiite uh, Muslims, uh, today there's kind of a, a missionary outburst, I'd say, of Islam, and it seems to be of a particular variety. And, um, you know, what we all seem to be a little bit familiar with, uh, not with what we think of as missionary, but as really destructive, would be the violent arms of al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Um, is, there, is that a particular kind of Islam that is different than all the rest? Could you explain that? Okay. Well, the, as I indicated, the militancy can be found in various uh, spectrum of uh, Islam. In fact, uh, what I sometimes think is helpful is to uh, draw a horizontal line from uh, fundamentalist Muslims, that is, those who go back to the fundamentals of the Quran and the practice of Muhammad. And then that spectrum goes all the way to uh, liberal Muslims and uh, even secular Muslims. Muslims, people whose identity is Muslim, but they don't pray. But then if we had a vertical line, which is a line between militancy down to uh, peacefulness, then uh, we could put in one quadrant, for example, the Wahhabi leaders of the of Saudi Arabia now, who were militant when they were fighting against uh folk practices, uh, shrine veneration, saint veneration in Arabia years ago. But now that they have conquered Arabia, they are peaceful. Uh, That is, the leaders of the royal family. But many of the Saudis themselves are militant because of feelings of uh, injustice. And so just the title, uh, unless it's a title like Al-Qaeda, doesn't indicate whether there is militancy there or not. Let's talk about some of the uh, basic elements of the Islamic faith, Um, and I take it that that would be the intense, I might call distanced monotheism uh, on the one hand, and on the other, the five pillars. Could you talk about the five pillars? Because that seems to be at the heart of what at least um, the practice of Islam involves. Right. Well, the five pillars, the first pillar would be uh, their confession of faith which is that there is no God uh, but God or Allah. And they chose the word that Arab Christians used at the time. Allah was what Arab Christians used at that time and still use today. So that is a confession, the first half of it, that uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians could uh, agree on that there's only one God. But then the second part of that, and Muhammad is the apostle of God, which of course uh, singles out Muslims. Muslims uh, distinctly. The second pillar has to do with prayer. And uh, the prayer is a prayer five times a day. Uh, and its content, except the reference to Muhammad at the very beginning and at the very end, is uh, the content is similar to what Jews or Christians might pray uh, as well. And then you have almsgiving. Now, it's not the tithe that Jews were to give and Christians to give. In most branches of Islam, it's about 2.5% of the negotiable debt-free 
earnings that they have. But again, there is a commonality there between Jews, Christians, and uh, Muslims. And then you have fasting. Originally, the fast seems to have been during the 10 days leading into Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, but then when the Jews uh, of Medina, where Muhammad was at the time, uh, did not uh, accept him, there was a ch- and actually turned against him, there was a changing of the fast to the month of uh, Ramadan. And then there is the pilgrimage, which uh, many of the elements of pil- well, the pilgrimage uh, sort of baptized into Islam, we might say, uh, the practices of a pagan ritual, but now identified them with uh, Islamic themes. And um, although the Jews used to make a pilgrimage three times a year to Jerusalem and the Muslims do it to Mecca, many of the elements of it uh, are quite similar. So so would... uh uh, would the doctrine of God be what for the typical uh, Muslim, and how do they view uh, the Bible of the church? Okay, first of all, their doctrine of God, as I indicated, they chose the word Allah that uh, Arab Christians used at the time. And uh, there's a verse in the Quran that says, your God and our God are one. So they were trying to refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Ishmael. Now, what they say about that God in some areas is very similar to what Jews and uh, Christians would believe, but in other areas, extremely different because the Christian would see God as revealed most fully uh, in Jesus Christ so that in some way Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So, um, It's not easy to say yes or no on uh, do we worship the same God. We're referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but our understanding of him uh, is different in some very crucial areas. And the scripture? And the scripture, uh, the Quran says that it does not, there's a verse that says it doesn't distinguish between uh, the Torah, the Psalms, the Injil or Gospel, uh, and the Quran uh, itself. But because there are some things in the Bible that uh, are different or things in the Quran that seem to contradict the Bible, uh, most Muslims believe that the Bible got corrupted along the way at any point where it differs from uh, Quranic teaching, although not all Muslims believe that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I've heard that uh, worldwide, and we've got over a billion Muslims, so about one-sixth of the world's population is, is uh, um, Islamic. Um, but I've heard that up to maybe 70% of those Muslims are actually what we would call folk Muslims, leaving only about 30% or so uh, thoroughly orthodox. What's the difference between being an orthodox Muslim and a folk Muslim? Okay. An orthodox Muslim is one who uh, would practice the five pillars of Islam that we have just uh, talked about and would find his or her faith uh, expressed by the Quran and the practice of Muhammad and law as it developed during the first 300 years of Islam. The folk Muslim is a mixture of that 
with usually pre-Islamic practices and beliefs that were in various countries that uh, they went to. And so uh, folk Muslims, uh, they might go to the mosque on Friday, but during the week if their child is sick, they will go to a shrine and seek to get blessing uh, or power from either the saint who is there, dead or alive. Uh, they might wear amulets to ward off uh, evil. And so they would have many practices that would not be in accordance with formal uh, Islam. Uh, having said that, uh, many Muslims, I'd say maybe the majority of Muslims worldwide, would be a mixture of the both. So that, uh, let's say, they do their ablutions, which are ablutions that are very similar to Jewish washing of hands and nostrils and face and, and feet and so forth. In Orthodox Islam, the meaning would be uh, to cleanse oneself before prayer. The folk Muslim might see the putting their fingers in their ears with water and their nostrils and so forth as clean, cleaning out demonic pollution. Mm -hmm. So the same form, but it might have additional and would have additional meanings in folk, folk practices. Would that folk Islam vary depending upon the background or the geography and from which country that influence came? That's right, because uh, that folk Islam would usually be the blending of uh, various pre-Islamic practices and beliefs with the Islam that came in. Now, the Wahhabism that we hear about in Saudi Arabia, for example, was an attempt to cleanse these practices from uh, from Islam, and it took a very militant form uh, originally when uh, uh, Abdulaziz ibn Saud, the father of the recent kings of Saudi Arabia, was conquering and trying to cleanse the land as he understood it, and it is often taking a more militant form, not always, but often taking a more militant form in other parts of the world. I understand, um, Dr. Woodbury, that you work um, on a uh, committee or uh, in an alliance of, uh, of Muslims and Christians attempting to seek ways to uh, uh, procure uh, more peace and um, uh, more well-being among Christians and Muslims where they're living together as they are in the United States and many other countries. Uh, what's, it like, what's it like working on that commission and, and what progress have you seen so far? Okay. Well, first of all, it's something that I feel Christians should be involved in, along with evangelism, because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said in Romans, seek to live peaceably with all people to the extent that you are able. So I see it as a Christian calling. Uh, having said that, what we are doing is seeking to find resources uh, in our faiths that can be used for conflict uh, resolution. And uh, because if you go to the Quran, for example, you can find 
peaceful verses, you can find a verse in chapter 5 of the Quran that says those closest to you in affection are those who say we are Christians. But then uh, in chapter 9 of the Quran, you will find a verse about uh, fight against uh, the enemies, including the people of the book, which would include Jews and Christians, uh, until they uh, submit and pay the uh, poll tax. So if when you go to the Quran, uh, and when you look at history, you can find plenty for peace and plenty for militancy. And so we are trying to um, find those resources that can be used in our respective uh, communities uh, to seek to live, live peaceably with all people, as uh, the Apostle Paul has enjoined us uh, to do. We are working on literature that uh, can be used with our communities. And uh, although it is slow progress, we are uh, content that it is moving along and will hopefully be helpful in our country. I was taken with your comment. Uh, you were very quick to respond with the peace initiatives for conversation and living with well-being that wasn't to, in order to sacrifice evangelism or to uh, eliminate your evangelistic uh, fervor. Uh, talk to us about the place of evangelism in relationship to a peaceful coexistence. Right. Well, uh, I think the Bible is quite clear. Uh, the, it's quite clear on its evangelistic mandate. We're told in Acts 1-8 to uh, receive, wait in Jerusalem till we've received power, then to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, we're told at the end of the Gospel of Matthew uh, to make disciples of all people. So the evangelistic commission is clear. But when we put beside that, uh, blessed are the peacemakers and seek to live peaceably with all people to the extent that you are able. When in Jeremiah uh, 29, we're told to uh, seek the welfare of the city to which we have been taken for in its welfare is our welfare. Obviously, these are both uh, commissions that we uh, should be working on, and they should not, uh, they do not need to be uh, conflicting with each other. I think they are uh, biblical callings that we can throw ourselves into wholeheartedly. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. They're not mutually, you know, uh, exclusive. They should not be mutually exclusive because uh, if we see the gospel as 
proclamation and demonstration of the transforming work of the gospel where there's plenty of room to be involved in both, and we should be involved in both. Now, what our Lord did show, there are certain times where we should emphasize the deed. He healed the leper and then said, tell no one. So there are uh, certain times where we are demonstrating the deed, but ultimately uh, the gospel needs to involve both proclamation and deed. As we turn our attention to what's going on today, it, I think it's clear that for many people, the dominant image of Islam is that it is a violent faith, or at least there's certainly a significant wing of it that's violent. And I think the question I want to ask is, why is it that, that uh, so many uh, Muslims are angry? If you could summarize that for us, what is it that they're angry about? Well, uh, this has been building up for a, a very long time. Uh, you see, Islam was the superpower for over a thousand years. And uh, now uh, they have been dominated in many, many fields of uh, life. Uh, in the Palestine-Israel situation, for example, land that for years had been under Arab, most of whom are Muslims, not all, some are Christians, but under Arab and or Muslim control uh, is no longer. So that's one of the issues. Then you have the colonial period when uh, most of the Muslim world up through uh, World War II, about the time of World War II, was under Western so-called Christian uh, powers. And then uh, in the present uh, situation, again, they are dominated by non-Muslims uh, in most areas of life. So there's a great uh, sense of frustration over this, uh, including now the fact that um, although the uh, war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan uh, was seen at least by the United States and its allies as uh, to free the people uh, from uh, very bad uh, conditions. It was interpreted by Muslims once they saw the bombs landing that these were bombs dropped by non-Muslims killing Muslims. And the emotion of that was uh, very difficult for them to, uh, for them to accept. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, although there are many Muslims who support uh, democracy, liberal Muslims, for example, uh, there is that basic feeling uh, among a, a large part of the Muslim community that everything would be solved if we just went back to the law of God as they understand it in what is called Sharia or Islamic law based on the Quran, the practice of Muhammad and what developed in the first 300 years. So uh, again, to see other systems of government and particularly brought in by non-Muslims has been very hard for many of them to accept. Another factor that comes in here is the, the uh, relationship, the perceived relationship between the West and Christianity for many Muslims, which perhaps is seen differently by people who live in the West versus the way uh, the Muslim world sees it. Could you talk about that a little bit? Right. The Islam traditionally has not distinguished between what we would call religion and politics. 
And uh, certainly in the medieval period, we had Christendom, which would be uh, Christianity, in a sense, determined by geographical barriers. Uh, and you had the same thing in Islam. We might call it Islamdom. Uh, so uh, historically, uh, both sides, we might say, determine their boundaries by uh, their their religious boundaries and their political boundaries uh, were coterminous. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is much more in accordance with Islamic basic theory than our Lord who said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. But they look through their own lenses, their own glasses, uh, and uh, we should be looking through the glasses of the New Testament where we don't, uh, where we can serve God even if we are not in a Christian uh, nation. Um, we can serve God under, uh, as Christians, under communist atheism or Calvin's Geneva. I, I mean, that, that we don't have to have a uh, Christian uh, government in order to serve God. So the effect of that is, is that whenever a government in the West does something, they're, they're likely to view that as also being Christianity doing something. Is that, that right? That's right. And you heard this with uh, Saddam Hussein way back in uh, the first Gulf War, uh, where he called it a crusade uh, that is the Western invasion as a crusade. And then some of his uh, Christians in Iraq said, no, just a minute, you know, and he began dropping the use of the word crusade. But for when you look at or listen to what Osama bin Laden said uh, around the time of uh, September 11th, and you listen to some of the statements that have come out from the militants, they keep using the word uh, crusade, making uh, our political agenda in the West and our religious agenda uh, overlap. Mm -hmm. This has really been a tremendous week on campus to have you here because your lectures to the whole campus uh, every day have been uh, have been really valuable and tremendously encouraging, of course, also to the Department of Missions and Intercultural mm -hmm. Studies, who are viewing this from a particular point of view with a great deal of personal interest. Um, can you tell us how have missions to Muslims changed over the last 20 years or during your own period of awareness? Uh, it's always been viewed as a rather difficult task to minister among Muslims and that there were really not very many uh, workers who are Christians uh, ministering to them. Uh, have workers increased and is there today any greater fruitfulness of ministry among Muslims than there used to be? Right. Uh, things have changed uh, recently, particularly with the focus on the so-called 1040 window, uh, which is an area of the world that includes the major Muslim world along with uh, Buddhist and Hindu worlds as well. So that focus has brought more uh, missionaries. Uh, because many of the Muslim countries are now uh, independent, uh, and many of them do not want missionaries. Uh, the Christian missionaries have often had to find uh, some job that the government of those countries does want. 
And so they can do that with integrity, uh, but also be there as a Christian witness. Now, as far as results go, uh, the results have been phenomenal. There's also there's been more opposition to the Christian gospel uh, with the Gulf War and uh, thing, uh, the Iraq War and the Afghan War and so forth. But there's also been a lot more receptivity. And the receptivity seems to be related to the fact that uh, many Muslims are disillusioned with the type of Islam they are seeing that is the more militant form. And as we've indicated, that's just one stream within the Muslim world today. But this is creating a um, disillusionment. And whenever there has been a friendly Christian presence where uh, Muslim governments have either taken a more militant form or tried to impose Sharia or Islamic law on the people, we have been seeing a considerable responsiveness, and this has been in numbers of areas, particularly North Africa and parts of uh, South Asia. Now, if you if you were could you know single out any specific factor that would make the biggest difference in terms of outreach and effectiveness of outreach to Muslims. What would it be, whether it's an individual who's working as a missionary among Muslims or whether it's just a, a person right here in the United States whose neighbor is a Muslim? Um, what, what are going to be some of the big factors in having any kind of a positive impact on them from a Christian point of view? Well, we have done a study now of uh, about 650 Muslims who have decided to follow Christ from 40 countries around the world and 58 ethnic groups. And by far the biggest reason that uh, they give for wanting to follow Christ is the lifestyle of Christians. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I would say uh, the lifestyle is something that Christians can uh, do any place. Mm -hmm. Now, there is usually... Uh, about three factors uh, in, in conversions. One of them is seeing loving acts of mercy by Christians around them. One is um, some portion of scripture that uh, has been particularly relevant, uh, hit a special felt need by them. And the third is some uh, experience of Christ uh, in their life, such as uh, they chose the power of God through Christ, where uh, there may have been a uh, healing in the, because they prayed in the name of Jesus, or it could be a, a vision or dream that they had, something of this nature. Uh, all of these seem to be uh, uh, out there and uh, are given by Muslims as uh, major reasons why uh, they decided to follow Christ. We've touched on it, the fear, the threat, uh, or the perceived threat of the more militant. How serious or how widespread do you think the agenda is that we hear that is a part of fundamental Islam to eliminate Christians and Jews from the land or a particular land. That uh, kind of a quotation is often given as a part of 
uh, orthodox, fundamental, you know, uh, Islam. How, how, uh, how serious is that? Well, both Christianity and Islam are worldwide religions with uh, an agenda to uh, lead the world to Christ. Or, uh, so uh, from that point of view, there's... Uh, uh, some commonality of uh, what our agenda is, although because Jesus taught uh, to turn the other cheek and uh, told Peter to put up his sword when he was going to use it, uh, when he started to use it to protect Jesus before the crucifixion, we of course don't see that the military uh, agenda should be part of extending the kingdom of God uh, as we understand it. We also need to understand that historically, uh, Islam from the very beginning had a place for Jews and Christians. They were called dhimmis. They were to be protected as long as they were loyal. And uh, we also have to confess to our own shame that historically Muslim rulers were often better at protecting the Jews and the Christians in their uh, empires than some Christian uh, emperors were in protecting Jews and Muslims in theirs. Having said that, particularly for the militants, there is a, uh, an agenda that involves today uh, military action as well. But uh, when we look historically, uh, Islam in the first hundred years uh, spread the empire, not the faith, but spread their empire by the sword. And then they created an ambiance that facilitated conversion. And then the conversion of the people happened over to the next two to three hundred years. Now, certain strategists uh, some time ago set up the reverse strategy for the West, that is, lead to converts, and then with enough converts there will be an ambiance there that would favor Islam, and then the uh, political agenda would be there. Having said that, a majority of Muslims who have come to the West did not come to the West to establish Islam uh, or what they had back home. They came to the West because they wanted uh, uh, greater freedoms, greater economic opportunities, and so forth. And so for a majority of them, as I understand them, they are here for the freedoms, including uh, the freedom of following your own faith according to conscience and your understanding of God's will, uh, not to establish Islam here. Uh, so I think although we always need to be alert to what is going on and guard against the misuse of our freedoms, I don't see it as the agenda of most Muslims in the West. So your advice to someone who is, as a Muslim neighbor, for example, would be to, to befriend and engage them like they would anybody, and not, to, not to view them as 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 all that different or quite so foreign or something like that. Is is that be the general direction uh, you go? That would be very much the direction I would feel would be following the pattern of Christ in in this uh, in this matter uh, certainly. Uh, 
Furthermore, when we look historically at about every hundred years, you've had a religious resurgence in the Islamic community, which has often but not always taken a militant form. But this has happened when the Muslims themselves have felt threatened in some way. And so uh, even though as Christians our motivation for being friendly shouldn't be to make it better for ourselves uh, necessarily, it should be because that is the pattern of Christ, the end result when Muslims don't feel threatened, at least from learning from history, uh, would seem to be uh, that things would get better. There would be less militancy as we ourselves uh, help them find their identity and feel that they belong uh, in our context. What, what bridges would you suggest building as you talk about um, God and faith uh, with someone who comes from a Muslim background? Well, I'd say some of these bridges are along the uh, lines of particularly Old Testament values of uh, just, uh, justice and uh, such that we, we find in our uh, uh, in our scriptures. And uh, so I'd say this, this would be one of the major uh, areas for, for building the bridges because we do have some uh, very common values. Uh, also, these would extend to uh, we have family values as opposed to the secularization that goes on. We can unite with Muslims against the secularizing forces that we see in the school. And uh, although uh, our country has chosen not to, to distinguish in one sense between religion and uh, politics, both Muslims and Christians believe that God should be central uh, in the way we conduct politics, even though we uh, Christians uh, in this country would not support uh, having a certain religion dominate the uh, politics. So I think there are lots of areas where uh, we can share with Muslims um, in modern moral issues um, and such. You've traveled extensively in uh, Arab lands where Islam has been predominant. You've lived here in the United States and taught here and are watching, as you've mentioned, the migration of uh, whether there be folk or orthodox Muslims to our country, would the strategy be any different for a person, say, working overseas, ministering overseas? What advice would you give to someone who, whether they're in ministry or not in ministry, but want to have an effective witness? What are some pieces of advice that you would give someone going into one of those kinds of countries that may not be uh, receptive to Christianity, you know, for political mm -hmm. or cultural reasons? I would say one of them is because in many Muslim countries we have to have a job that the country does want in order to get the visa to be there. You, In very few countries can you go in as a stated missionary to make sure we do our jobs well and that we have integrity. 
in the way we do our jobs, but as we do our jobs, to do them with Christian values. And this can give opportunities to share from time to time. I remember when we lived in Saudi Arabia, um, one of our parishioners uh, who worked in a hospital there where most people had a Saudi counterpart uh, that they worked with. And uh, one day the Saudi counterpart said, uh, you know, I've been wronged by so-and-so. Uh, I guess this time I probably should forgive him, don't you think? And then uh, our friend said, well, Jesus said uh, you should forgive 70 times 70. So just gradually uh, to begin to show what living by Christian values can do uh, in transforming society. And uh, that can become very... Uh, very attractive when they see the problems of uh, counter, uh, one person does something and the other retaliates and then the other retaliates back and forth, that these values uh, can make a better society for all of us. And ultimately, they see these as values that can come through the transforming work of uh, Christ. This has been very helpful. We so much appreciate uh, your time with us. And uh, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, Dr. Pocock, would you just close us in a word of prayer and uh, ask God to give us wisdom and those especially who are on the front line contact uh, wisdom as we uh, live the life and as we also proclaim the gospel. Amen. Certainly. Heavenly Father, indeed, we are grateful for the presence of Dr. Woodbury on our campus this week. We thank you for the influence he has had among our students and the clarity with which he has spoken of the nature and needs of Islam and the approach of Christianity to it and of Christians. Uh, Father, we lift up to you right now all those who are living among and ministering among Muslims, that, Lord, they would be able to live their lives transparently uh, manifesting your grace, uh, showing full integrity and excellence in all they do, so that as those who surround them and wonder what a Christian really is like, what a person looks like who's been transformed by Christ, they would be able to see you clearly in them. And we pray that, Lord, not simply for those who uh, live in areas where the majority of the population is Muslim, but also for our own country, because we live in such a diverse nation where many of our neighbors come from various areas of the world and different religions. We pray, Father, that as, as, uh, as neighbors, we would become good neighbors, uh, people who extend ourselves for their well-being, who really do think about their shalom, even as the, uh, as the prophet Jeremiah told the uh, Israelites when they went up to uh, Mesopotamia and were captives there to nevertheless uh, seek the shalom, the well-being of the people unto which the Lord had taken them. Now, Lord, we are not captives in our own country, nor is anyone else a captive here. But Lord, we pray that we would work towards the well-being of all of our neighbors, no matter what their religion may be. We ask it for the sake of your glory and the extension of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.